Okay, let's go back to Romans chapter 8, and we're in verse 34, and uh, it looks like tonight we will be able to cover the B part of verse 34. Um, I take no pride in going slow, but I, I, um, I say again, I think the things that are compressed into um, verse 34 are worth our attention. Let me read it to you again. Uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, um, you, you might recall that, uh, just kind of get a running start from uh, last week. Um, um, I'll get that later. Um, we talked about the... the, the um, the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, or the existence of Jesus Christ, is broken up into two halves. Guys, this is just for convenience sake. This is, for, this is so that you can sort things out and, and, and have things to hang your thoughts on. The, the, uh, the life, Christ, in all of his existence, his life is divided up into two halves. The, the first half begins with conception um, and goes all the way to his burial. Um, and that is called the uh, humiliation. Um, of, that's the humiliation half. And, and of course, from conception, you've got, you know, you've got to his whole ministry. Uh, you've got his, uh, cruci- you've got his trial. You've got, uh, you know, the crucifixion. All those things are in there. And the burial is the the last item in the humiliation of Christ. The the other half. Uh, begins with the resurrection and goes all the way through, even till now, through eternity. and uh, Eternity. And that, of course, is called his exaltation. And I mentioned that this all last week. But I'm saying that in verse 34, uh, you, get, you get the crucifixion uh, mentioned. He died. You get the resurrection mentioned. You uh, even get um, his what is known as his session uh, mentioned, and you get his intercession uh, mentioned. We'll, get, we'll look at that maybe next week. Uh, there are a couple of things from here to here that are not mentioned, um, like the ascension, um, and I, I talked about that last week, and the, um, the session of Christ is, is mentioned indirectly. It's, it's, um, it's found in this statement when it says, um, who is at the right hand of God. That is, he, he, um, he arrived at the right hand of God through his session. It's a word that simply means um, being seated. He was seated at the right hand of God. That's his session. Now, guys... Um, we mentioned last week uh, his whereabouts during the three days of his res- uh, uh, the three days of his burial before his resurrection, and I and I mentioned a text in uh, is it First Peter three nineteen that talks about he went to the saints in prison and boy I created quite a stir last week by that comment um, uh, because we really are not there's there's a couple of statements that one in First Peter three nineteen there's another one. In Ephesians chapter 4, let me read you that. Um, 
I'm saying he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Uh, those are the only two statements that, that give us any insight as to what was going on in those three days when he was, uh, when he was in, a, in a tomb. But now exactly, for instance, the, the first Peter passage talks about he preached to the saints in prison. Okay, who are the saints? No, excuse me. I didn't, that's wrong. He preached to the souls in prison, not the saints. Scratch that. He preached to the souls in prison, um, the spirits in prison. What's the prison? What's the, what did he preach? Uh, there's all kinds of questions about that text. I'm simply saying that um, there, I mean, I didn't give you anything really dogmatic about uh, those three days. I'm just telling you that's what the, all the New Testament gives us. That's the only glimpse it gives us into those, his whereabouts during those three days. Then we moved and we looked at Acts chapter 1. This is all last week. Acts chapter 1 and looked at his ascension. Now I want to take you, um, I, I want to take a look, I want you to look with me at this, this session idea, that is, that he is uh, at the right hand of God. Um, now, gang, um, between his resurrection and his being seated, um, our... What the Lord is doing at that point is what is known as his priestly work. You know, we talked about him having three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Well, after the resurrection and before he is seated at the right hand, the work that is being carried on there is his priestly role. And that priestly function is described with some degree of detail in the book of Hebrews. And I want you to go see it with me. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start there. Now, again, guys, um, we're talking about the, 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 act, the, the work of Jesus Christ right before he is seated at the right hand of God, which is his priestly work. And how does the Bible describe that? Uh, it describes it with some detail, not detail, but um, with some frequency in the book of Hebrews. By the way, uh, if you are what you would call kind of a New Testament guy, you know, you only read your New Testaments and don't spend much time in the Old Testament, you're never going to understand the book of Hebrews. Um, that, an understanding of the book of Hebrews is vital. It, I mean, the Old Testament is vital to that understanding. We're going to look at that in just a second. But I want to show you this priestly role, this priestly activity in, in Hebrews chapter 9. Stay with me. Let's start at verse 6. By the way, this is all in Old Testament language. This is all in an Old Testament backdrop. This is all in an Old Testament. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's images here that if you don't know this Old Testament stuff, you'll never get them. I'll show you in just a second, but... These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. Now, what in the world is that all about? But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Boy, did you get all that? <laughs> According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience for, of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Ladies and gentlemen, that is, that is, that is profoundly significant uh, uh, statements that are being made. Now, some of you have heard this before, and, and you're going to maybe find a... But if you haven't heard this, you need to see this. And what I want to do for you is I want to draw you something. I'm not, a, I'm not very good at drawing things, but we'll, we'll do our best. Um, first of all, guys, the Old Testament speaks of... Um, actually, the Old Testament speaks of, of two... Very critical buildings. Maybe there's a lot of buildings, but two very critical. One is called the tabernacle. Um, and the other is called uh, the temple. Now, what, in the, what difference is there in those two things? Well, this tabernacle thing is very impermanent. I mean, it's movable. Uh, you know, they, they, it, it, was a, it was a tent. And they moved it around. Um, it was with Moses. Um, and, you know, it was, they took it down. They set it back up. Whenever the, 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 the spirit or the, the cloud moved, they moved. Um, that's the tabernacle. But then along comes Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple. They're very similar buildings, which we're going to see in a second. But very similar. And this is very permanent. You're not moving this, baby. Uh, and they are they are similar, except this one is roughly twice the size of that one. But they have three basic um, compartments. We'll we'll call them. Um, and and by the way, some of these dimensions that I'm going to give you, you know, they might not be exactly accurate. And some of these drawings up here, but you're going to get the point. Um, now, we're talking about the temple now. Oh, gosh. We're talking about the temple, not the tabernacle. Once Solomon built this thing, this thing was not used anymore. Okay, it passed into disuse. But the temple is built, and it, both of these buildings have three things in common. Uh, they have a, what's really called a portico, um, which is this thing all around in here. Then they have this, this other thing, which is, which, which, um, I'll call the main hall. And then, then this inner sanctuary. Both of these buildings had exactly those three, those three parts. An inner sanctuary, um, and a, a main hall. Alright? Now guys, the, the main hall is what is known in language that you'll recognize as the holy place. This is the table of showbread, the ark of incense, 
Um, there's something else in there. The, the seven-pronged candle, all that's in here. The only thing back here is the ark. And separating these two things, by the way, out here you've got the, the bronze basin, you've got the bronze altar. The basin is where they wash things before they sacrifice them at the altar. And by the way, there's this stuff out here too. Um, it was kind of a courtyard, and, and I, it was called the Court of the Gentiles. Um, but I think it was also the place where women were allowed. I think it was also the court of the, I might be wrong about that, but the court of the Gentiles, but it's out here. This is the temple. And by the way, this is 600 feet. Uh, that's, that's two football fields. This whole thing here. Now, this thing is, uh, is not that big. All right, but now separating this little building, I mean, this little part of the, uh, of the place from this place is a curtain. It's a veil. And in, is it Luke 22 or Luke 23? I think it's Luke 23. Um, Jesus is being crucified and this veil is torn asunder. This thing is ripped apart. Now, guys, go back to the Hebrews 9 passage. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into this first section. Right there. That's where they went regularly. They go into the first section, performing ritual duties. But into the second one, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year. Uh, you know, the only high priest goes back there, and he only goes back there once a year, into that, into that, that, this inner sanctuary, this holy, holiest of the holy place. And he doesn't go back there without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Because the priest was just as sinful as anybody else. By this thing, and the once in the year, the high priest, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. By this building... The Holy Spirit is telling you something and explaining to you the priestly function of Jesus Christ. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You know, this stuff that's going on here, it isn't going to work permanently. But it only deals with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Until the time things get remade. Then you drop down to verse 11, which says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Now, gang, listen. He doesn't enter into this thing at all. Not that one, says the text. He enters into a different one. A um, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. That is, the Son of Man is performing His priestly role, and He's doing the same thing this guy did. What did this guy do? Well, the high priest goes back here and he enters into that which is known as the presence of God. 
So what is Jesus doing in his priestly role? Between this ascension, or between the resurrection and his session, Jesus is entering into this place. Not this literal one. Not this one. But he's entering into the presence of God. Um, verse 12. He goes in. He enters. Not every year. He enters once and for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So this thing is designed simply to give you, to foreshadow. Do you know what that word means? It's a, it's a prophetic piece of communication. It's a building for heaven's sakes. Yeah, that's what it is. But it ain't only a building. It's a building that even its design and architecture communicates something. Yeah, the priest went in there. You know, he went in there all the time. But he only back here once a year. And that way he took you know, the blood of gold for his own sin and the iniquities of the people. Because he went back here in the presence of God. That's, this is when he had the, the thing, the rope tied around his ankle. Once a year, Day of Atonement, he goes back there. He's got this thing tied around his ankle. He's got, he's got bells all over his garments. He's got bells all over his garments. The high priest does. In, because people outside can't go back there. And they've got to know that he's still moving. They don't hear any of the bells. They're thinking, oh my goodness, God struck him dead. And so he's got a rope around his ankle. So they can drag him out of there. <laughs> in case he didn't make it. So that high priest goes back there once a year offering blood. And the text says, but it can't cleanse the conscience. It's not something that's permanently done for the worshiper. But when Christ appears, verse 11, who brings these glorious things which He's told you have come, He goes back there, but not in this building. He goes back into the presence of God. Something completely spiritual. Something completely otherly. Something completely heavenly. He goes back there. And he ain't carrying blood of bulls and goats. He's carrying his own. Because our high priest is not simply the priest. He's also the sacrifice. And he goes in with his own blood. And the text says, once and for all. Once and for all. Not every year, not annual, not on the day of atonement. Forget that day of atonement stuff. That's now over. Because Jesus has entered into the presence of the living God. Bearing His own blood. He does it once for all. Now guys, I've said all of that so I could say this. And I love to say this. He goes into the presence of His Father only once. He presents His blood. And because the Father is satisfied and pleased, the Father says, Have a seat. Seated! At the right hand of Almighty God.
And that sitting communicates finality. It's done. And look at what the text says, guys. It says in verse 12, and um, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Brings his blood in there. Father sees what's, what he's got. And he says, have a seat. Seated at the right hand. Guys, that's in this Romans 8 text. It says he resurrected and he seated at, he seated at the right hand of God. But before he's seated, he completes this priestly role. What does he do? He can, oh, by the way, I want to show you one other thing. If you're still in Hebrews, stay there. Go over one chapter into, into Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 11. Again, the book of Hebrews is comparing what took place in the Old Testament and all this priestly stuff here with the priest. Look, this, this is glorious, guys. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service. Now, that's not the, the priest. That's this, these guys. You know, the sons of Aaron. All those guys. All those guys stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And then look at this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Notice the comparison, guys. Verse 11, and every priest stands. He stands daily, offering repeatedly, and it can never take away sins. But when Christ comes, he offers a single sacrifice. And then he sat down waiting from from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The the, the being seated, guys, um, is a sign of finality. It means that nothing further needs to be done concerning our sins. Because not this work, but Christ's work is a perfect work. Now, how does that fit into the whole argument of Romans 8? Because Paul is trying to communicate to God's people that there's nothing that they need fear. And because this work is so perfect and so final and so complete, there is, therefore, no condemnation that any Christian should ever expect anybody who is in Christ Jesus. These guys... They stood daily, and they continued to say the same things, the same sacrifices, and they never washed us of sin. But when Christ appeared, one sacrifice, once and for all, secured eternal redemption. Case closed. And so the father looks at his son and says, you know, have a seat. While we make all the enemies, while we get all these enemies and put them at your footstool, there seems to be 
this is language of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. Don't turn here. But there seems to be also the dimension, that is, of his being seated as somewhat of a reward. I don't know whether you, he doesn't say this, but just listen to this. Um, Therefore, uh, well, let me read verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It seems that this being seated is, um, is somewhat of a reward also. From the Father to the Son for a job well done. The, the, the Father gives to the Son this, most, this position of the most distinguished guest because the Father is so pleased with what he's accomplished. And all of that work that the Father has been, that, ple- that so pleases the Father is done for us. I told you that three weeks ago, that is, or two weeks ago. That for us you can't read quickly over that. All of this. Well, he died on the cross, and then he was resurrected, and then he was seated at the right. He ascended, and then he was seated at the right hand. Now he's interceding. What? what did he do that for? He did it for us. He did it for all those who were in Christ. I want to do one other thing, and then I'm going to quit, because um, it'll be a good place to quit. Um, if you know the answer to this, please don't give it. I don't want a right answer. I only want wrong answers. So, therefore, I won't, I won't, I won't do that to you. But if you know the answer, just, just kind of hold it to yourself for a second. On the heels of Christ's finished work accomplishing this thing that pleases the Father, and the Father says, have a seat at my right hand. A position of cosmic authority. I said this last week, that is that uh, it is from there that he says, okay, all authority in heaven has been given unto me. Okay, go, you guys go get your, go do the, this thing. Um, seated at the right hand of the Father. All right. There is, however, one place in the New Testament where Jesus is pictured as standing. Do you know where that is? Good. Nobody knows. Let me tell you about it. It takes place in the book of Acts. I want you to see it in just a second. But um, So you might flip over to Acts, and I'll tell you the chapter in just a second. But as you know, the book of Acts, uh, you know what the book of Acts is all about. And, and um, in chapter 6 of the book of Acts, uh, they have a little problem in the, in the church. The, uh, the, the, the Hellenistic Jews, uh, widows, are not getting their fair share of all the the uh, the sharing of the stuff. And so the, the church gets together and says, wait a minute now, we, we need to make sure that that's getting done. So we're going to create this whole other office called the diaconate, deacons. And they create this, this group of men, uh, and the qualifications for that office are listed for you in the early verses of chapter 6. They must be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of the guys that is chosen in this first band of deacons is a guy by the name of Stephen. 
And Stephen was not only a good deacon, he was a good preacher. And so in the kind of the last half of chapter 6, Stephen is out on the streets, you know, proclaiming and heralding Christ. As a result of his getting, um, starting to preach, he gets arrested. He is then dragged before the Sanhedrin and all their cronies because he wants to, they, they want to know what's, what, what he's up to. And so in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, Stephen speaks to the combined gathering of all the religious authorities in Judaism, the Sanhedrin. And so it, it, it's, it's kind of a, it's a long chapter, uh, chapter 7. But it really, it's really an interesting thing. If you, I've commended to you for tomorrow, but, um, you know, look at verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. You know, Stephen starts off and he says, brothers, brothers, uh, let me, let me tell you a few things. Uh, you know, our father Abraham, and they're saying, yeah, our father Abraham, we know him. And I appeared to him while he's still in Mesopotamia. Yeah, he's got that right. You know, he keeps going. He gives us a little Jewish history lesson. And, and I can just imagine some of those guys sitting there thinking, um, hey, this guy, he's no Johnny come lately. I mean, he knows a little bit about Jewish history. I kind of like this guy. Why did we arrest him? I, you know, I don't understand why we, why we dragged this guy in here. I mean, he's just, he's just telling us everything we already know because we already know about Abraham, Moses, and all those guys, and Joseph, and, and Jacob. Oh, we already know all about that thing. Yeah, 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 I like this guy. What's the matter with you? What's, you know, what's the matter? Why are we, why are we trying this guy? And then over verse 37, uh, but it was Solomon who built the house for him, yet the, the most high does not dwell in the houses. Yeah, 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 Solomon, he built that temple that Jimmy Young was talking about up there. You know, yeah, yeah, that, that, that Stephen boy, he knows what he's talking about. And then he comes to verse 51. He's given him the history lesson. He comes to verse 51 and he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your, did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the laws delivered by the angels and did not keep it. I mean, he gives this nice little sweet presentation of a history lesson of Israel. And then as he's closing around his sermon, he says, you're a bunch of stiff-necked bums. You know, what, what you've done is you never listened to any of the prophets who told you that the Redeemer was coming. And then when he told you, and then he shows up, you murdered him. At that point, the room erupts. Um, uh, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. <laughs> and they ground their teeth at him. You know, he's standing for all these religious leaders, and he's just jacked them in the jaw uh, with a with the truth, and now they're enraged. Um, Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's the only place in the New Testament you're going to find Jesus standing. And he's standing in defense of his persecuted people. It's as if he sits there and all of a sudden he sees the the snarls and the grinding of the teeth and they're about to stone Stephen, which they do, and they ultimately kill him. 
And Jesus cannot stand it. And so he arises from his seat to welcome the persecuted saint who had stood for truth. To welcome him into his eternal glory. The Son of Man in, is disturbed as what, at what is happening to his people. And it prompts him to rise from his seat. Ladies and gentlemen, that is glorious. <laughs> that the Son of Man is so intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And no saint has ever been persecuted that the Son of Man did not recognize. Nothing that you're going through. I'm not sure it's going to make him get off his chair. But nothing that you're going through is hidden from his eyes. It is a seated Savior who has completed his work that the Father says, Now, let's make sure all the enemies are at the footstool. And then we'll send you back. Our Father, I, I do pray that your people might discover beauty in these, these thoughts, these verses, that their hearts might leap as they discover the perfections, the uh, finality of the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. And then encourage us, Father, that nothing that we experience for the glory of God is ever going to be ignored. Uh, and whatever we have suffered in the name of Christ Jesus is that which stirs the very heart of our great high priest. Lord, um, in, in the midst of all this, would you also speak peace to your people? Would you also cause them to take a deep breath and rest? Not in their being baptized and not in their teaching a Sunday school class and not in their uh, extravagant giving. Help them to rest in nothing more than what Christ has done for them. What a grand salvation is ours. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.